Zoom, Teams, WebEx, whichever platform your agency uses, it does create a record. New guidance from the National Archives and Records Administration is going to help you manage all those planning meetings, presentations, and blab fests. For more on the bulletin and how agencies should archive those records, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with NARA's Chief Records Officer, Lawrence Brewer. It relates directly to a strategic plan goal that we have in our current strategic plan to issue more guidance around emerging technologies And collaboration coming out of the pandemic was a key issue as agencies were working together using all kinds of collaboration platforms. So the bulletin is really an attempt to define what a collaboration platform actually is and describe the kinds of records that are created on collaboration platforms and give agencies a little bit of guidance of what the records management implications are for managing those records that we all as agency employees are creating when we're collaborating using these tools. Imagine this is more complicated than people realize because if you're doing a meeting and everything's voice, right, there's no, it's video, is that a record? If if I put something in the chat and uh, post a link or post some comments or, or something in the chat, is that a record? I'm sure those people maybe don't realize how complicated it can be. It is complicated, and we are creating different types of records now that we're using these tools you know, in, in more complex and new ways. And ultimately, the decisions that agencies need to make comes back to the definition of what a record is and how we're using the information that we're creating. So if it supports decisions that we're making when we're collaborating in these platforms, then it needs to be managed as a record. Uh, Other types of artifacts that we're creating in these platforms, like video recordings and chat related to the video recordings, are also discussed as part of what we reviewed in the bulletin, and we're trying to provide some guidance around those types of records, too. Whenever a bulletin like this comes out, what's next steps for you to educate and and inform and get the word out to agencies to say, hey, next time you're on Teams, hey, next time you're on Zoom, next time you're on WebEx, and there's probably 10 other ones I've missed, don't forget that you need to do this. The bulletin and the the policies that we issue is really the, the beginning point of a process for us. Outreach is critically important to what we do. We spend a lot of time talking about what we've issued at conferences like 930.gov, at our uh, bi-monthly bridge meetings where we meet with agencies, Federal Records Management Council meetings we have with uh, departmental records officers. Uh, but we also take the policies and bake it into the training that we offer for all agency records officers out of our records management training program. And, of course, to the extent that we can incorporate requirements in new regulations. We're always looking to revise our regulations to make them aligned and consistent with what we're doing in the bulletins. But it's really our first step in terms of like getting the word out. And uh, we have always, you know, look to expand and increase the, the mechanisms by which we communicate. One of the reasons why we use Records Express, our blog post, to really publish information about the kinds of things that we're doing so we can broaden awareness within the records community and with the public. A lot more to talk about that because I know collaboration platforms with hybrid work, there's a lot of people are interested. I want to shift to another bulletin that's maybe further, further down the road, which is around social media. You mentioned uh, at the 930 Gov conference just that 
something that was in the works. What can you tell us about that? Thinking behind it, you had met with some agencies as well to kind of get their take on it. Offer me maybe at a high level, what are, what's the initial thinking about the social media bulletin? The work that we're doing on social media tracks the same NARA strategic plan objective where collaboration is um, discussed and it has to do with emerging technologies. And social media is a key area where we want to issue more guidance, learn more about what agencies are doing with social media records, and update the guidance that we previously issued in 2013, which was a white paper on social media, which was really our first attempt to sort of define what the platforms are, what the implications are for agencies managing their social media records. So what we have done this year is we engaged with 10 agencies to, to do a social media assessment, which is sort of like a topical engagement to um, interview, review, assess documentation that those agencies have around managing social media records. And it will cover, uh, you know, sort of like the basics of the programs themselves, but will definitely call out and identify certain types of social media that agencies are managing and discuss how they are doing it. And the goal of the assessment is to really for NARA to learn from the agencies about what they're doing. And then we expect that we will be issuing some some follow-up guidance that will include some requirements for agencies, um, which will reflect what we already have in NARA's regulations, sort of extend those guidelines to the specifics of social media management. Imagine the challenge with social media is the changing environment that, that happens, something like you know, Facebook is big and then Twitter becomes big and now now it's LinkedIn, everyone's using LinkedIn and, and then all of a sudden you have things like TikTok which becomes a whole s- series of problems. How are you managing the, the quick changing? The, how, how, do you, how are you ensuring that you guys are agile when it comes to these policies? Or maybe generally speaking, it's easier to add a new social media platform than take out and what's the balance you're striking? Yeah, I mean, we always want to try and, and stay ahead of the curve, but it's it's difficult when you're issuing guidance because you need to really learn what's going on. So you don't want to get too far ahead. You want to make sure that the guidance that you're issuing is based on real experiences that that agencies are having. And I think our approach in the past is, is to try and be to the greatest extent that we can technology agnostic and really focus on the records that are produced in a lot of the tools. So regardless of the platform or the tool or the service, the requirement is still there for agencies to manage the records that are being created and whatever tool that they are using. And I think what we need to learn is what are some of the barriers, what are some of the obstacles that may be tied into some of these tools that are affecting the proper management of federal records. And I think that's what we're trying to learn out of the assessment. And we hope that by building awareness that those can be challenges, that it will help agencies be a little bit more aware of the kinds of tools that they're going to use and so that they can be sure that they can manage the records coming out of them. I know that the challenge of social media has been ongoing. Generally speaking, do you get a sense that agencies are managing the records fairly well through these social media channels, these, these platforms, or, or is it, I know we've been using social media now for, it feels like a decade, but is, how do we measure that? that effectiveness. We have a couple of tools where we can gather data on how well agencies are doing. We have our annual reporting where we have a records management self-assessment where we ask questions about social media records. Um, And we do have feedback that, you know, agencies understand 
that you know these are important records they are accounts that need to be managed um, and through the assessment we have learned from a number of agencies that have social media programs where they are building in the kinds of controls that need to be there and you know it's like any other type of complex electronic record implementation and operations always the challenge the policy and the requirements are all clear i think agencies understand what the requirements are it's making sure that the controls are are baked in to the tools and the processes and the procedures that have agencies have in place around managing these records and that's what we work with agencies on making sure that they understand you know if they pick this tool They've got to make sure those records management controls are in place, particularly if we're looking at accounts that might have permanent records, they're senior officials. We want to make sure that those records are well managed. And I think agencies understand that. It's getting it done, I think, is always the challenge. Lawrence Brewers, Chief Records Officer for the National Archives and Records Administration, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, 
just to name a few, and you have an amazing career, what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, 
go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. 
there's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.